I don't just collect Ouija boards. I collect everything Ouija related. So mm-hmm. every article I can get my hands on because that helps me track how Ouija boards are seen or what people are thinking during that time. fascinates me with the Ouija board is that it has captured you know the imagination of this country for over 100 years if there's a danger in using a Ouija board there is danger in all spirit communication because I don't know who we think we are that we think we understand the rules of what spirits can and can't do and now ladies and gentlemen banal of America audio with your host Tim Benall. What is going on, my friends? This is Tim Benall of BenallofAmerica.com with another edition of BOA Audio Season 6. Yes, the train is still rolling along. Do not fear, do not fret. BOA Audio is here once again with another installment of Esoteric Madness. And things are looking up, I think, for BOA as a whole. As you can tell here from the intro music, big thanks to Ian for supplying the tunes this week. We've got a few other different samplings in the mix that we'll be rolling out over the next few weeks and months here in Season 6 and beyond. So anyone who wants to still contribute music to Banal of America, just write to boaaudio at hotmail.com and we'll be happy to give it a listen. Now let's get down to business on this week's edition of the program. Very exciting show. Very different, I think, from what you're going to hear on a lot of other programs. Continuing our theme this season, we're going to be exploring another fringe realm of the esoteric as we welcome the world's foremost collector, historian, and expert on the Ouija board, Robert Murch. I think folks are really going to enjoy this conversation quite a bit because Robert Murch's passion for the Ouija board is infectious. And as always on the program, it really is less an interview and more a conversation here this week on the show. We're going to be examining the Ouija board from a whole bunch of different angles and going down just a whole myriad of side roads over the course of this hour and a half. We're going to get into the Ouija board basics, including the distinction between Ouija boards and other types of spirit board devices, the history of the Ouija board in America from 1880 all the way to today, including the evolution of its popularity. Along the way, of course, we're going to address the long-standing idea that the Ouija board is dangerous or evil, We'll find out where that idea originally came from and how it contrasts with the early popular opinion of the device, as well as how that perception has changed over the years. Those are the big areas of discussion in this conversation, but of course there is tons and tons more in there, folks. Lots of little details and side areas we explore. Altogether, really, it is an episode that provides a wealth of enlightenment on an esoteric icon, which has stood the test of time. And we're going to be digging into it with the man who has championed it in the modern era and really helped to correctly rewrite the history of the Ouija board, talking about Robert Murch. For those of you unfamiliar with Robert Murch, allow me to provide you with a little background on him. Robert Murch is the world's foremost collector, historian, and expert on the Ouija and talking boards. To most, he is known simply as Murch. After watching the movie Witchboard in 1986, his strange relationship with the Ouija board began. 
Robert purchased his first antique board in the summer of 1993 while attending college in New Hampshire. After his second purchase, he realized there were many different Ouija boards and continued collecting. Distance has never been an issue for Robert, and he is known to drive hours for a board he doesn't yet possess. Though he never mentions costs, it is rumored that he has spent a small fortune collecting these rare talking boards. He currently claims to own over 300 different talking boards. He has worked with DreamWorks Studio as their Ouija consultant on the movie What Lies Beneath, and was contacted by the producers of the movies Sugar and Spice and Drive Through as well. He has made appearances on Showtime's Bullshit, the Travel Channel, MTV, the BBC, Australian Radio, U.S. Radio, and consulted on A&E's Paranormal State. He's also been featured in articles published by the Associated Press, USA Today, CNN.com, ABCNews.com, and various local newspapers. His websites are robertmerch.com, pretty simple, robertmerch, M-U-R-C-H.com, and williamfold.com, and that's William F-U-L-D. Com. Both sites contain a wealth of information on the Ouija board, so be sure to check them out. And with all that said, let's get down to business and rock and roll. This interview was recorded on January 19th, 2011. Robert Murch talking about the Ouija board on BOA Audio Season 6. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another edition of BOA Audio Season 6. Continuing what has become sort of a trend here this season, we're going to explore yet another esoteric topic that sort of exists on the fringe of the quote-unquote mainstream paranormal. And this time around, we're going to be looking at the Ouija board and the history of the Ouija board in America, as well as talking boards in general. And I'm very excited to have our guest here on the program. Robert Murch Jr. is the world's foremost collector, historian, and expert on Ouija and talking boards. He really is an amazing historian who has done just some remarkable research on the evolution of the Ouija in America and all the trials and tribulations of the makers of the Ouija board and how what we're looking at today has quite a storied history here in America. And, I mean, as you'll hear when we get going on this interview, he really is a tenacious researcher on how this all unfolded as well as an amazing collector of Ouija boards and talking boards. So I'm really looking forward to getting him here to talk about his research and his work. And of course, you can find out more about him at the website www.robertmerch.com as well as www.williamfold.com. And that one's spelled William, then F-U-L-D.com. And we've been trying to get him on the show here for the last couple of months, and finally our paths have crossed, so I'm very excited to have him here on the program. He's from Boston, nearby BOAHQ, so that's always nice as well. Welcome to the program, Robert. I think we're going to have a fun conversation this evening. Oh, thank you guys so much for having me. Happy to be here. We'd like to start out here with the bio, the background, you know. So who is Robert Murch? I know you like to just go by Murch, and, and you know, I go by Banal almost all, almost exclusively, so <laughs> we're, we're in good company here. So, uh, you know, who is Murch? How did you get interested in the Ouija as well as the uh, the world of the esoteric, if you will? Well, um, you know, I, I was kind of uh, had an interesting childhood. I was raised uh, Orthodox Jew, which I'm not practicing anymore. But, um, you know, in any um, Orthodox religion, you tend to be somewhat spiritual. So, you know, ghosts, um, all that stuff was just kind of, you know, obviously existed. And in, in my family, it just was kind of, you know, there. So... Um, when I was in college, I, uh, I was in a quad, so I had four guys, um, 
that I shared a place with. Mm -hmm. And um, basically, they three of them decided they wanted to rush for a fraternity. And I knew that if I did that, I would never graduate. So <laughs> I, I decided they would do that, and I would help them, and then I could go to the parties and enjoy the fact that they were in a frat, but I could actually – you know, study and, and, you know, finish my classes. So yeah. um, one of their, one of the things they had to do when they were rushing was a treasure hunt. And on it was an old Ouija board. So I, I, I used to go to uh, flea markets, antique stores with my dad. And so on the weekends, I, I came back and picked up a bunch for them. And uh, when I left UNH, I was packing up and I, I had 10 different Ouija boards and they were all different. Oh, wow. And I, and I thought, well, that's really weird. I mean, I never really looked at them before, right? So how can they all be different? Aren't they, isn't there just kind of one Ouija board? And uh, that was just the beginning of, you know, it's like 17 to 18 years ago now, um, basically just kind of starting the research. And then when I started the research, I would look things up, and there would be completely different answers in every encyclopedia. It was a little pre World Wide Web. Yeah. I actually had to like flip open the Funkin' Wagnalls and, <laughs> yeah. and the Britannica, um, which, you know, people today have no idea what that is, but um, I, I had to flip those open and look through them, and it just didn't seem right. And so I, I started digging more and more, and uh, that led me to actually um, kind of tracking down and having them track me down, the descendants of William Fold's family and the. Uh, other other people who were involved in the Ouija board, and that just that of course led me on to doing more research and, and kind of discovering more things. And, and now, all these years later, basically, um, have you know the whole Ouija history has been rewritten on all this, and, and and lots of other people have gotten involved, and I've gotten to kind of work on uh, you know movies, TV shows as Ouija consultants. It's kind of a, a wild, crazy ride. So that's kind of where it started, and it's kind of. Today, you know, like, uh, you know, my mom is, is, is really proud of me that I'm considered a Ouija expert. <laughs> <laughs> That's what we're all looking for, isn't it, though? That's exactly. what we're all striving for. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you spent all that money on college for, so it's fantastic. Um, but, you know, it, it's very, it is very interesting. And it mostly um, what fascinates me with the Ouija board is that it, it, it has captured you know, the imagination of this country for over a hundred years. And, uh, you know, anyone who's involved in this subject, there are many different tools to explore the paranormal. And as, as we see, a lot of them kind of come and go within a year, you know, and then there's the next tool. Yeah. And very, very rarely does something stick around that long. And, and, and uh, also, you know, you could walk up to some people and be like, Hey, do you know what a K2 meter is? And you know, if they're not involved in the subject, they're like, what the hell are you talking about? You know, is it a pregnancy test? Is it what that, what is that? Yeah, yeah. You ask anybody on the street, even young kids today, hey, do you know what a Ouija board is? They always know what it is. So it's this kind of neat, um, kind of aberration of, in this world of like things, fads coming and going, that it seems to kind of catch its fad every generation. And, you know, every generation feels like they've um, kind of, like, this first time they've, they've not invented it, but they've kind of just been the first people to find it. And, um, you know, it's funny. And, and that how we perceive the Ouija board today as being kind of um, dangerous or a tool of the devil or just, you know, a doorway, you know, to the occult, those things, are, that's a fairly new phenomenon in the life of the Ouija board. You know, most people 
we, we tend to see things in the lens of today. Yeah. And, and you know, if you talk to your grandparents or great-grandparents and you ask about a Ouija board, they're like, oh, my God, I haven't thought about that. We used to have so much fun. I mean, they were things that the whole families played with, um, you know, starting in the late 1800s and, and straight through until the 1960s, 1970s, where you really started seeing Hollywood take an interest in using the Ouija board as a, a great visual tool for spirit possession, demon possession, or just, um, you know, conjuring something that's bad. And we don't realize how much that impacts, it throws back, you know, to like, you know, art imitating life or life imitating art. It's kind of this, you know, symbiotic relationship between the two. And so, you know, you see it in movies, then all of a sudden people start playing with Ouija boards, having a bad experience, and then it just, it builds and builds and builds. So the Ouija board has, has a unique true life history, and then it has um, these kind of urban legend history in life on its own. And uh, they don't always, they don't equal the same thing, but it, it, you don't want to kind of demystify the mystifying oracle because it, it, it's what makes it so popular, you know, a hundred years later. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you touched on a whole bunch of different things that I have here in my notes, so that, that was great. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, and it's, it's, it's remarkable to, you know, that there's so much history and so much power can be found in a simple, you know, piece of cardboard nowadays. I, I presume that's what it's made of now, or a little yeah. piece of wood or something. It's like, and, and as you're saying about people, you know, everybody sort of has... It's like a rite of passage almost. Uh, you know, yeah. everybody has their Ouija board story, so it, it, it's pretty, it's pretty remarkable to think about. Now, I guess to sort of like I guess delve into the history of the Ouija board. Obviously, as we'll sort of get into, the, the actual word Ouija is really an American thing. I mean, that, the, the whole the, the word Ouija is, is came from the people who you know developed it here in America. But what was the history of? I guess you could call it the uh, the talking or the spirit board. You know, before it arrived in America. Well, you know, it, it's interesting. The term talking board, that's actually an American invention as well. So oh, okay. What we know as far as talking boards, and, and talking board being the general term for these type of boards, Ouija, though it's the most popular um, and the first kind of commercial name, is a trademark that's currently owned by Hasbro, and Parker Brothers is, is a division or a brand of Hasbro now. And... Uh, and so it's kind of like Kleenex. You yeah, I was just going to say that. Yeah, yeah. Or Xerox copy. You really mean photocopy because Xerox is actually a brand. So it just it's it, it's it was one of it was the first commercial talking board. So we kind of you know we use them interchangeably, but technically it's just a, it's a version of a talking board. Um, so talking boards. We know there was an article uh, in 1886 in the New York Tribune that was talking about um, the talking board sweeping northern Ohio. And so we know that these boards actually existed, you know, four years before Elijah Bond files for a patent in Baltimore. Now, what's, what's really kind of cool is, so I track back, wait a minute, how, first of all, how do you get a patent on something that already existed? Yeah. And, um, and the other thing is, well, how did, you know, how did no one, how did he, how did he find out about it? So, so basically what happens is he was in the Civil War, and during that time in 1886, Elijah Bond was actually in Ohio at that time. Oh, wow. So, so my guess is, you know, again, I, I don't know this for sure because I, I, I wasn't there, and the Ouija board did not tell me this. <laughs> but logically, if he's in the area, 
is hitting the news, it's probably something he saw. Yeah. And, you know, he gets back into Baltimore, and he, Elijah Bond was uh, a patent attorney um, as well as just a regular attorney. And so he decides probably, you know what, like these, these things are cropping up. Um, people are homemade making them. I could probably patent this and then sell it. That's basically what he does. So, so he, he comes up with his patent on the talking board, and we know he didn't invent it because they were existing, you know, prior to his filing them. And, you know, he sells it to two individuals, William Maupin and, um, and, uh, Charles Kennard. And that's the beginning of this Kennard novelty company in Baltimore that the first company that commercially sells talking boards and the Ouija board. It's just kind of neat because the talking board is the combination of two things that we see happening that come from other places. So there's the dial plate board, which is uh, basically what was happening in Europe. And it was a similar thing, usually round, and it would have a pointer, kind of like a fixed, almost like a dial. Mm -hmm. And it would point, it would turn and kind of just pick out the letters on an arc. And that was expensive. It never really took off in the United States, though there were some made here. And then there was something a little older called the planchette. So today we call the pointer to the Ouija board a planchette. But uh, prior to the talking board, the planchette was a device on its own, and it was used for automatic writing. So if you imagine uh, the pointer or planchette, this heart-shaped device, bigger, kind of about the size of your hand, okay. and in the, the point would be a hole where a pencil would go. That would become one leg. And at the larger two sides of this heart-shaped device, there would be wheels and casters. And what people believed was you would put your hand on this device, and the spirit would come through you and write out your answer. Oh, weird. Yeah, so, so that, that was existing early 1800s in Europe, crossed over into the United States. And in fact, in that article, it also talks about the new planchette. So the planchette and these dial plates, like, merged. You know, people were using kind of both of them and then just thought, well, wait a minute. You know, what if I just put this, what if I put, like, the other end of the pencil where the eraser, just the end of the pencil would be, it makes a leg. It could actually point out letters. That might be faster than, or trying to read handwriting. Yeah. So out comes kind of this natural progression, the next thing, which becomes the talking board. And um, and when you talk about the 1890s, when the uh, Ouija was patented, it's this huge phenomenon because, you know, you, you think of another thing that's happening is late 1800s or just actually mid to late 1800s, huge boom in spiritualism. Mm-hmm. So spirit photography, mediums, and, and so people have to spend money. It's expensive, right? You know, like people are not super wealthy in this time. And so they have to, if you want to have, if you want to speak to a ghost or a spirit, you have to find a medium, someone who's trained in this. And all of a sudden, this game for a dollar, dollar fifty, you know, depending on whether you bought the small size or the large size, you could do this yourself. And the first critics of the Ouija board were not like the religious folks, were not fundamentalists, was not the right wing. It was actually the spiritualists themselves. Because you think what happened, immediately people are buying the Ouija board, they're not going to, to mediums as much. So what happens? Someone's losing their income. So the first thing that mediums do, we have these great articles, because I, I don't just collect Ouija boards, I collect everything Ouija related, so mm-hmm. every article I can get my hands on, because that helps me track how Ouija boards are seen or what people are thinking during that time. Yeah. So these articles talk about, the, the immediate critics are, 
mediums. And what do they say? They say, hey, these things are dangerous. You don't know what you're doing. You're opening up a door, and you don't know what you're doing, and you need someone like me to really guide you through this. You shouldn't <laughs> be playing with these. So, I mean, it's funny. It's the same argument we hear today, but it, it, it seems and appears when you look through these very early, like within the first year that they're done, the biggest critics are another business that's being hurt by it. And, you know, those arguments, same arguments we hear today. So it's kind of funny. They just came from a different place. Yeah, that's remarkable, really, when you think about it. That's pretty amazing. I I hadn't caught that uh, before, but, yeah, that would make total sense. They would be the ones who would be anti-Ouija board right away. And you point out here on the website that there was a patent found uh, from 1854 in Europe where the mm-hmm. the, the patent suggests that uh, the apparatus, the, the device is used to put out the thoughts of a person on the on you know through the Ouija board, it it conveys the person's thoughts, and then um, then there's an article by a spiritualist, I believe, who contradicts the whole thing and says that that it's used to, for spirit communication. So it's as you say on the thing here, it's, it renders a, a division of the intended and actual use of the of the talking board. Was that always sort of the case, or or was it like? Did everybody was it always sort of considered to be used for spirit communication, or or had it previously or at some point been seen as like you know this novelty thing where you know your thoughts can be transferred via your hand, if you will? I think right in the beginning it fell into different camps, and the other hard part to think about is today. You know, like today they're called spiritual. You know, I mean, yesterday they were called spirituals. Today it's ghost hunting. You know, that's the big, the huge thing. It's and it's popular today, and people don't think you're crazy if they see you doing this. Back then, it was the same thing. If people, if you walked into a house and saw people playing Ouija board, you'd be like, "What the hell is going on here?" Yeah. But but back then, it was super common. Everyone had a Ouija board, and everyone was playing it. It was it was uh, it was uncommon if you saw someone who wasn't playing with the Ouija board. But they didn't see it as a cult or evil, or it was kind of like it was part of the movement. Everyone was talking to spirits. Right away, some spiritualists said, "Okay, this is bullshit. This is clearly your subconscious. It, it has nothing to do with spirits. This is just you. You wanting it to work. Your mind playing tricks on you." And and, and today, psychologists call this, um, you know, eye to your motor response, yeah, or um, you know, form automatism. Your brain, you want it to work, and so using a Ouija board puts you in the place where your mind opens up and allows your subconscious to answer questions you don't even know you're pushing it. And, and I, in all my investigations, I have seen this as well as I have seen things I can't explain. So I think people picked up on it really quick that sometimes it's your subconscious and sometimes it's things you can't explain. Yeah, yeah. Being a ghost. So I think, but, you know, the part to remember is when, when you talk about the beginning, it's hard to think of a time when, oh, yeah, of course you're using a Ouija board. But, I mean, you think about it, right? Like people always say today, why are Ouija boards still popular, you know, after 100 years? Well, you know, I say this in my presentations, you know, for 1995, you get an unlimited calling plan to the other side. <laughs> no exactly. overages, no roaming, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and, and Ouija boards, look, it's, the funny thing about it, it's like you said in the beginning, it's so simple. Letters and numbers, and it's something that points them out. So, I mean, you know, it's, this is, it's the first wireless device. It's the first text messages, only they were from the other side. And it, it's kind of funny where we're, we're at today. You know, we, we, today we use people on their iPhones. Exactly. Sending messages back and forth. It's the same, you know, it, it's all, 
they haven't come as far when you think about what they were doing. It's kind of ironic. In addition to that, too, kind of like what you pointed out with the mediums and stuff, it's like, let's say you go to a medium to, to get these messages from the other side. You don't, you don't know, you never really know for sure if you're being taken for a ride or not. But with the Ouija board, you know, there's no ill intent. There's no fraud, at least, you know, on the part of the Ouija board, if you will. Do you know what I mean? It's like, it's a straight up, it's a straight up one on, one, one individual thing. You don't, you don't have to deal with someone else's, uh, you know, hang-ups or, 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 you know, their agenda, if you will. Right, exactly. If you're doing it by yourself, you know, or if you're doing it with someone you trust, your friend, you know, you know they're not pushing because they kind of want it to work too. People ask me this all the time, like, you know, well, do you think they're bad or do you think they're good? And I, look, I have over 500 of these boards in my house. By how the walls are covered in all kinds of article, you know, covers like Norman Rockwell yeah. did uh, a cover in 1920 in May. Um if, you know, as we all know, Norman Rockwell, he wrote, you know, he does all these pictures of really horrible, tragic events. You know, not really, right? They're all beautiful, <laughs> like, Americana things. So in 1920, a common scene was to see a man and a woman playing a Ouija board. And, and early directions would say, a man and a woman preferred. Now, okay, well, that's weird. Like, why would they say that, right? Yeah. You know, was it some right-wing agenda against the gay people? No, it wasn't. What What it is is, back then, people knew that there were rules to how you dated. So you think of Victorian times, right? Like Victorian times, a man and a woman were not to be left alone. Well, all of a sudden you have this game that allows you to be in candlelight, you're sitting together, your knees are touching, the Ouija board's sitting on, the, your hands are touching. I mean, this is like the total date game. This yeah. is just uh, brilliant. And in that picture, if you look in the picture of um, Norman Rockwell, the woman is looking up like as if to look to the spirits for the answer. The man has a smirk in his face, and he's looking at her chest. It, it's a brilliant depiction of time that has not changed in the least bit. It's the same story. And so, again, another reason why is it so popular? Because it's still a great thing to do with your date, because as soon as they get scared, who are they, whose lap are they going to jump in? Exactly, yeah. For me, I have 500 of these things. A bad, nothing bad has ever happened. To me, I've only had really good things, including being on your radio show, right? So like, nothing has ever happened to me that's bad. Not to say that I haven't had people who've had problems with Ouija boards, but I try to tell people this. I know what they've heard and I know what they've been told, whether it's their religious. But it's like you and I are right now, we're, we're, we're doing this interview over the phone. So say we get into a fight, you know, where we, I say really nasty things to you, you say really nasty things to me. It's a lot of swearing, all kinds of stuff. We slam down the phone. You don't take your cell phone or your home phone, rip it out of the wall, and toss it out of your window and say, well, never have another telephone in my house. Yeah. It'd be, it'd be insane. Why would you do that? But if someone has a bad experience with a Ouija board, they take it out. They want to burn it. They want to throw it out of their house. It's like, wait a minute. The, the Ouija board didn't do this. People forget you're communicating with something else. And that communication happened with a telephone, which happened to be the Ouija board. But the phone or the Ouija board is not actually doing anything. It's you. You're, you have this ability to communicate with your subconscious, with a spirit, with a demon. And so it just happens to be the tool you're using. And, you know, why does it work better for some people or worse? Well, it's been around for 100 years. I mean, it has 100 years of anything that you can immediately look at and know what to do without reading directions holds power. Exactly, you know, yeah. You look, at, you look at this, it's generations of power. You know, again, 
it always makes me laugh when people are like, I do these um, investigations or I do these um, conferences and the people are like, you know, the first thing a lot of people ask is, okay, we're going to do this investigation. Have there ever been any Ouija boards used here? You know, like, like it caused the problem that's going on here. And, and so, I, you know, I kind of chuckle to myself. And then I watch the investigators take out, you know, um, K2 meters, um, you know, and, and, and start asking questions or EVPs, doing EVPs. Yeah. And, and then they're asking questions like, is there anyone here? Does it any, are there any messages for me here? You know, how did you die? And I'm thinking, okay, is this not the same questions we ask when a Ouija board? <laughs> and these are people who don't want to use the Ouija board. And then they say, and I, I think it has a lot to do with the technology. Oh, well, look, nothing bad's going to happen to me by, you know, a spirit making my key two meter blank. I'm like, okay, wait a minute. Like, I got to think about this logically, right? Because that's all my research. I try to stay very logical. Like, okay, so the spirit can make something blank, but it can't reach out and smack you. Like, who made that rule? Like, <laughs> yeah. I, I think because technology makes us feel apart from the experience. Like, you know, you can set your K2 meter down and walk away and then see if it blinks or, or make a, um, a flashlight flicker by asking questions. It, it makes you feel like you're not part of it. You're kind of an audience to it. Right. When you use the Ouija board, you feel it move. And there isn't a creepier, more bizarre feeling than you looking at your friend being like, oh, my God. And you feel it, and it's happening real time. You know, it, with EVPs, it's kind of an interesting thing because, I mean, it, those are amazing. It, it, that's a science that just completely floors me, and I, I love the Constantinos. They're just fantastic at this. But the difference of it is you ask questions, and you, you a lot of times you don't hear any answer. And you, so you spend hours asking questions, then you have to go back and do hours of, like, listening and then cleaning up. And then you hear it, and it's still amazing, but it's not immediate. Right, it's not that real-time communication. Right, and with Ouija boards, you get this real-time, you're part of it, you're touching it, you're feeling it. And so I laugh. I tell people, if there's a danger in using a Ouija board, there is a danger in all spirit communication because I don't know who we think we are that we think we understand the rules of what spirits can and can't do. You know, I mean... I haven't, I'm not a spirit yet, you know, like I I crossed (laughs) over. So I don't know what the rule book is, but I just somehow have this bizarre feeling that it's like, oh God, they're using a K2 meter. I can only make it blink. I can't do anything. But God, help me God, they open a Ouija board and I can just, you know, possess the hell out of them. Yeah. I just, I don't think it's a logic. And, you know, again, the beauty of the Ouija board is it's not logical. It's all very feeling based. It's, it strikes a chord in people's hearts that it's either fear or intrigue, you know, like nothing else does. So I, I don't want to, again, you know, demystify it, but in my logical head, I, I, I do chuckle and laugh when I, when I hear people explain to me that, you know, doing all these other things, reaching out to a spirit and invoking and trying to start a communication puts them at any less danger than sitting down with a Ouija board. I just don't, again, I just don't, it doesn't make sense to me. And I haven't, seen it. You know, the, the other thing is people believe that there are huge amounts of um, evidence that show that Ouija boards are bad for your health and, and for your mental health and your spiritual health. And, and I'll tell you this, just to see if this was true, part of my research, I, I try to fall on every side. I stay very, very non-committal. I just want to see the facts. Yeah. And so I called up the top 10 medical facilities in the United States and the top 10 psychological facilities in the United States. And I asked each one of them in the past one, five, ten, and 25 years, 
how many patients have they had admitted or cases that involved Ouija board use? You know, and besides them thinking I was completely insane for asking this, <laughs> they, the, the answer in all of those cases was zero. Wow. So you had, now, now you could say, okay, well, you know, no, 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 they would have gone to their priest. You know, and unfortunately I did, I have talked to the Vatican. They will not release those numbers to me. But I'll tell you, the, no matter how religious you are, if someone starts like babbling and acting crazy and, you know, flipping around and, you know, trust me, you're going to call a doctor. Yeah. Like, they're going to, they're either going to go to the hospital or they're going to go to the funny farm. Like, yeah, first, exactly. you know what I mean? Like they're going to be evaluated in today's, you know, in our world of kind of modern medicine. So even going back 25 years, you may end up at your priest, but even for example, in the exorcist movie, it all starts in the hospital. So the hospitals to me would seem to be a pretty fairly great place to start and, and having the answer be zero, it doesn't match up with the stories. So again, you fall into the urban legend or what we call Ouija-sticians. <laughs> I like that. So next to, and you know, and the Ouija-sticians are great. I mean, you know, the whole thing of you, you shouldn't burn a Ouija board because if you burn it, you'll feel like you're burning yourself. Or if you, if you bury it, then you'll feel like you're suffocating being buried. And don't play it alone because if you play it alone, the spirit has more power. And I'm not saying any of those things can't happen. You know, I, anything is possible. But the truth is, you know, the research doesn't match up with the stories. Mm-hmm. And in fact, in the exorcist story, so, you know, there's a great scene, and that's kind of the beginning of the whole spirit possession and demon possession with the Ouija board is from the movie. Okay. But in the real case, the actual case, there is no proof a Ouija board was ever used. So, it, though it had came later, it is actually not in the original notes that were kept by the priest or... Um, People who researched it later said they just, you know, they'd say, well, the, the Ouija board was used by the aunt of this little boy who was used. The fam- family members who were interviewed later of that boy, whose identity is still kind of kept secret, um, said there was no such aunt. There was no grandmother. This person didn't even exist. <laughs> so it, it's not that it, it might not be true. It's just that there's no proof. Right. And, right. you know, to me, if there's no proof, I kind of have to go, well. You know, right. the researcher, if I can't prove it, I, it just becomes an interesting story. Right, exactly, because you're really, you know, a historian on this thing, so it's it's important yeah. to get the facts right, because otherwise, hey, you know. And, and, the, and the stories. Like, I, I'm equally, um, you know, fanatical about copying down each, you know, story about this as well, because, it, again, it all plays as part of its history. Now, I guess talk a little bit about sort of the, the trials and tribulations of the early uh, you know, the early Ouija in America, how, you know, it seemed like uh, these guys, which I, I found it really interesting, it goes to what you had said earlier here, uh, that, that these guys who sort of started the factory and started, you know, patented the Ouija and everything were politicians and lawyers. So, I mean, these were these were like, you know, upstanding, important members of society and the citizenry of, of, of Baltimore and everything. So it's like, you know, that just goes to what you were saying earlier about, you know, Norman Rockwell and how mainstream this was. I mean, these were mainstream guys. You don't see politicians and lawyers getting mixed up in ghost hunting nowadays. No, not so much. Um, I, I, although it would probably make them more interesting to me if they were. Yeah, yeah. I, I agree. Um, the... So you have these people. So Elijah Bond, you have um, one of the original settling families, descendants in this family, the Bond um, of Baltimore. You have um, someone, Colonel Washington Bowie, a descendant of the same Bowie family with a Bowie knife from the Alamo. Oh, wow. Um, you have uh, Charles Kennard, again, very wealthy family from uh, Delaware. 
You have um, William H. A. Maupin, a uh, very upstanding high political family from um, Virginia and West Virginia. And, um, you know, it, it's kind of interesting. Um, you have all these people, you know, from kind of seen in high esteem. And um, and then you have William, um, uh, what's it called? You have um, Harry Wells Rusk, who... Um, was the president, and he was a, um, a patent attorney. He was also um, in the House of Delegates in Baltimore, in Maryland, and served in the Senate, and then also served as um, in the United States House of Representatives while he was president of the company that made the Ouija board. Oh, wow. So I, I, so I worked with Congress to kind of rewrite his biography because I didn't know kind of the more interesting things about him, which I find that fascinating. Absolutely, so, yeah. Um, and so all these people, you know, they come together to make this business. And, and back then, look, you know, it's like old money makes more money. So a lot of these guys had lots of businesses going on at the same time. And it was like you'd start five things and one of them would do well. Right. And so this was one of them, and you know, a toy and novelty company. And so, you know, what happens when you have – they start a business making all kinds of toys. The Ouija board takes off like boom, like wildfire. And so immediately what happens is is uh, Washington Bowie, who was the person who kind of um, had his hands on the purse strings, and he was the person who kind of put in the most money. In the original agreement, it said basically this was the company and these are the people who would be involved for the first year. And, uh, you know, Washington Bowie's like, hey, I can do this by myself, really. I don't really need all these people. He keeps Harry Wells Rusk and boots out the rest of the people. And, and he even boots out Charles Kennard, who was – the namesake of the company, Charles, the uh, Kenner Novelty Company, and, and they changed the name to the Ouija Novelty Company. So you have um, Charles Kennard who, you know, he kind of sells out, and then it's like, oh, my God, what did I do? You know, because the Ouija board just makes infinitely every year more money, more money. So he tries it a couple times to kind of get back into the business, and he tries to make other talking boards, but there's a patent in place. And so it's, it's, it's hard to think that there's a patent that you can't make another talking board, but at the time... Um, up until 1908, there was a, uh, a patent in place. So he tried a couple of times, and it just – they kept shutting him down. Yeah. You know, like, he can't make it. And they brought a lawsuit against him, and, and so his his family, his descendants, will have gone on the record as saying they were very bitter. The, Charles Kennard was very bitter that he'd kind of gotten knocked out of this. But, but shortly afterwards, you know, by 1891, um, Washington Bowie puts William Fold, who we see as kind of the father of the Ouija board – and um, he's working at the company, and he puts him in charge. And under William Fold's leadership, the Ouija board becomes what it is today under him and his family. He just has remarkable marketing vision. I mean, he, he marketed this as you know, there was the mystifying oracle, and um, he just he knew exactly how to do this. As you know, the, the occult is sweeping the nation. He made up all these stories about the Ouija board use, and. Um, he just he played it perfectly. He just knew exactly how to do this, and it's kind of thanks to him and his family. Um, you know, we're we're actually talking about the Ouija board because I think if he didn't get involved and he didn't do what he did for it, as far as um, just making millions of Ouija boards and marketing them correctly, it, it just would have you know been a fad. Yeah, yeah. And, and it, his family. So so William Fold worked making the Ouija boards from 1890 in the original company, um, right up, and his family did until 1966 when they sold it to Parker Brothers. You found an article uh, from the 1920s or 1920 when William Fold said he made $3 million from the Ouija board, which in 1920 is like insane. 
So yeah, I mean, that just says what what a huge phenomenon this thing was. Exactly. You know, here it is. You got this guy, and again, he was kind of a, a real upstanding citizen. He was also in the House of Delegates, um, serving in um, Maryland, and he also was a customs inspector. So you've got this guy whose people are like you think of 1920, right? There are a lot of people out of work. There, are, the country is in, you know, like it, it's not a wealthy shape, and he's making three million dollars. Just unfathomable over Ouija boards, you know, one product that he's making out of many. William Fold actually made uh, lots of other toys, including he invented the return pool table. So up until him, you just had pockets in your pool tables, and he kind of came up with the slat system oh, wow. that return your pool table. So again, he's not known for that. No one cares because he also made the Ouija board. So yeah. uh, that's the only, that's more interesting, more fascinating. So um, yeah, it's pretty cool. And, and in fact, William Fold said uh, in, in 1917, the Ouija, he, he tells people the Ouija board told him to prepare for big business and to build this big factory. So in, in 1917, he starts to build a one-block, three-story, what was considered in Baltimore at the time, skyscraper factory that just, you know, it made other toys, but its main focus was to make Ouija boards. And um, actually, I, I worked on that um, up until, I think it was 2009. 2009, I finally uh, worked with the mayor in Baltimore and got it recognized as a, uh, a Baltimore historic landmark. So today, you can go actually see that factory it's um, a home for the elderly, but the, the building will not be torn down now because it's a historic landmark. That's amazing. It's amazing just to think that, the, that there was a Ouija board factory somewhere like oh, back in the day, you know? Yeah, there was tons of them. And you know, That's the other thing that happened early on was the minute you have something popular, you have people making um, kind of fake Ouija boards. Yeah. So tons of them. I mean, and people had huge businesses. They tried to call it Ouija, and then they would get a letter saying you need to stop. And so they, there was like the Ouija Queen, um, the Michi Minuto board. There were all kinds of boards. And, and that's where the other names came from because people couldn't use Ouija boards. So besides talking boards, you have spirit boards, witch boards, you know, fortune-telling boards. Yeah. It's all kind of part of the, the thing. You know, today anyone can make a, a talking board. You just can't call it a Ouija board. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, and the and the word Ouija comes from the French for yes and no. Is that correct? Well, you know, there's there's two stories that we can kind of point to, and and the first was earlier uh, William Fold would William Fold later tells a different story. So earlier you have the story where Charles Kennard and his uh, wife were playing the game and asked what it wanted to be called, and they said it spelled out. Ouija, O-U-I-J-A. Mm -hmm. And then later on, William Fold would kind of rewrite the story and say, oh, no, 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 Ouija is the combination for the French and German words, we and ja. So it would be yes, yes, meaning the board would always speak to you. So it's, you know, I don't know which one's true. Who knows? You know, they both make pretty good stories. So (laughs) today, it's widely accepted that it's we, it is the French and German. But again, the truth, I have no idea. You know, the, the families, the descendants, they know both the stories, but no one knows what's really true. Yeah, yeah. Well, you've done an amazing job of, uh, you know, we have this expression here in, in, the, in the world of ufology with, with regards to studying Roswell, the, the race with the undertaker, to, you know, to speak with witnesses and, you know, to speak with people who may have heard secondhand stories and stuff like that about that event. I mean, you're talking about a whole... You know, two generations prior to 1947. I mean, so you're you're in a serious race with the Undertaker to get some of these verbal histories down on paper for people who you know whose 
parents and grandparents were, were you know, the Folds and, and the Kenners and the other people involved. Yeah, exactly. I actually um, was really, really lucky. Any Anyone who does this research knows, kind of funny and ironic, but especially when you're talking about Ouija boards, but the best place to do genealogical research is to get to the graveyards. So how I found a lot of these people, because they're not listed, and, and people's, you know, people have daughters, and then their name changes when mm-hmm. they get married. So when you're trying to track these, these people down, the best thing to do is you can find where the people are buried. And so for 15 years, it took me to find where Elijah Bond had been buried. And, and it was really weird. I finally found out where he was buried um, in Greenmount Cemetery, where Harry Wells Rusk, another um, Ouija founder, is also buried. And he's in an unmarked grave. And, and the reason they didn't know he was buried there is because his cart stuck to the back of his son's. And in this historic cemetery, it's not computerized. It's all index cards. It makes you feel like you're a little kid going to the library. <laughs> yeah. And they finally found the cart, and it showed he, where he was buried, but it was in an unmarked grave. And then at the same time, I found um, his, let's see, his great-great-grandnephew. Oh, wow. Life. And... Um, he gave me to his mother, who would have been his great, great, or his great grandniece, and um, she put me in touch with her father, who was the grand nephew of Elijah Bond, so Elijah's brother's um, grandchild. So I, he was 99 years old. Oh wow! And and so he gave me this interview. Now he knew Elijah Bond. He died. Uh, Elijah Bond died when he was 12. So he had memories of his. Um, you know, of his great uncle. And he told them all kinds of great stories. So it, it was, he told me all kinds of great things and he gave me permission to actually put in and raise money to have um, other people interested in Ouija boards kind of pitched in. And we put in this um, gravestone that has like Elijah Bond, um, patentee of the Ouija board. And on the back is his drawing of the Ouija board from his patent. So his, the back of his um, gravestone, this huge marker, is a Ouija board. Yeah. So go see that. Yeah, there's a picture uh there's a picture there on your website. It's it's uh it's pretty cool of uh of his Ouija his Ouija gravestone. <laughs> and it was you know to me honestly it was a way to say thank you for giving me at that time, you know, 15 years of this hobby that had taken me everywhere from you know, um, studying the history in Canada, and I, I finished writing the history for Canada. It's a different history up there, um, kind of went on its own course up there. And so it's just taken me everywhere. And uh, I kind of was like, hey, you know, this is a thank you. Now, you know, the flip side is this poor guy, you know, was like resting in peace since 1921. No one even knew where he was buried. I just, you know, I hope he was okay with, like, all of a sudden, you know, last year, it was actually the number one visited grave in Greenmount Cemetery. Oh, wow. And that's the, the cool thing about it is like, okay, well, cool. But how many people are visiting graves at this graveyard? It's actually the same graveyard that John Wilkes Booth is buried at. Oh, wow. So he's like, so he's, he's topping uh-huh. John Wilkes Booth there. Exactly. So that's a pretty cool thing. I mean, of course, look, I have to admit, it's pretty bizarre and neat as you come up the hill where he's buried. And as you come up over the hill, this huge marker that has a, a Ouija board on it, you can see kind of coming at you. Yeah. At a gra- in a graveyard, that's a little strange. So I, I can see why it gets attention. Yeah, I'm sure, you know, I can't speak for him because he's not around, but, you know, everybody wants to be recognized for their accomplishments. And so, you know, I'm yeah. sure in a way it's it, it's a, you know, maybe he now he can rest in peace and he's getting recognized for what, for what he did. Exactly. hope so. 
he hasn't he hasn't given me any bad messages, so I guess it's okay. Well, that's good. <laughs> now, now, what about this? Uh, what about this Fold family feud that you helped to? Uh, to sort of settle that went on for like 96 years, but uh, thanks to your research and, and sort of uh, getting these the various branches of the Fold family back together again. Talk a little bit about that whole thing. Yeah, you know, I, I, I'd love to take credit for it, but actually they did such a, a, an amazing job burying the hatchet. Um, so in 19, um, well, we'll go back to 1897, uh, William Fold decides to bring his brother involved in the business. And, you know, today you hear horror stories like never do business with your family. Yeah. Um, but, you know, they were close, very close. Uh, Isaac was an older brother who also um, made all kinds of pool tables and other toys, very talented uh, individual in his own right. And they're in business together making Ouija boards from 1897 to 1901. And in 1901, um, we don't know why, but um, uh, Colonel Washington Bowie decides to um, give William Fold the exclusive right to make Ouija boards um, as opposed to his, him and his brother. So immediately, you, when, when Elijah Bond, is, I mean, when uh, Isaac Fold is kind of cut out of the business, um, it starts a feud. And, and we, no one knows why. Like, you know, it's, it's really interesting, but back then, when family fights broke out like this, people just stopped talking about it. Yeah. It's like the other, this person and that side do not exist anymore. Mm-hmm. So they didn't talk about it with other people. We know, because I've gotten my hands on all the trials, um, they went to court a couple of times. And starting in 1901 and ending in like 1920, 1921, um, and they fought back and forth as to who could make the Ouija board. So Isaac continues making Ouija boards. He gets a lawsuit slapped against him and an injunction stopping him from doing it. So he decides, well, you know, I'm going to just call them something different because, um, you know, why not? And so he he calls them Oriole boards. You know, it's perfect, right? Baltimore Orioles. That's what he calls it. Yeah. And the thing is, is he actually, he uses an exact, he uses the stencils that he had or that he took from when he was making Ouija boards. And we know this because actually Stuart Fold, uh, Isaac Fold's grandson, had these stencils that were found in an old trunk um, that were kind of passed down in the family. And so I took these stencils and I put them up to a Ouija board from that time and they matched. And then I put them up to uh, Oreo boards that were made and they also matched. Oh, wow. So, so luckily these were not found during those trials because Isaac would have gotten in a lot of trouble. But um, they—that's what he was doing. So I, they, the Isaac side of the family, Stuart um, and his sister, they actually gave me one of those stencils where the word Ouija is cut out, and these stencils are brass. So they're these neat, huge brass kind of um, you know cutouts that where the Ouija board, where the ink was rolled over them. So they gave me one of those, and that's hung up on my wall. Um, that was used in this fight. And so in 1921, the courts finally decided once and for all that Isaac broke the law. He shouldn't have been making these kind of faux Oriole boards and um, that William Fold had the exclusive right to make them. And so, um, you know, from 1901, the two sides of the family did not speak. And in 1997, I had put up a website. You know, I, I thought, oh, I'm look, I collect Ouija boards. I'm, I'm amazing. I have 12 Ouija boards. And I was like, <laughs> I know everything, you know, I knew nothing. And um, so I, but I put them up there and just kind of put up the stories I knew. And Kathy Fold, the granddaughter of William Fold, signed my guest book and wrote in. And, you know, she said granddaughter of William Fold, daughter of, um, I think she just wrote HF, which was Hubert Fold. And according to my research, 
Hubert Fold didn't have any children. So I was like, yeah, you know, she's the granddaughter of William Fold and I'm the Pope. Yeah. So I just didn't believe it. And so yeah, I, I wrote her back and she actually knew answers to questions that only the family would know. And it turns out the family did a good job of hiding her because back then in those days, um, you know, she was kind of like the, the, the person who would inherit the fortune and, you know, this kind of Ouija empire. And they, people, kids were getting kidnapped. And so they did a really good job of keeping oh, wow. her separate um, and kind of out of the, the, the spotlight. And she was an only child as well. So it just was, you know, all, all of William Fold's children kind of besides uh, Paul. Yeah, it was like, like Lindbergh baby style stuff. Exactly, exactly. So she was kind of kept out of the public eye. And because the Ouija board inspires a lot of, um, you know, I don't want to say crazy people, but I do want to say interesting people. So, and passions are pretty high around the Ouija board. So they just kind of kept her out of it. And um, so I start talking to her. And a week later, Stuart Fold, the descendant of Isaac Fold, his grandson, writes me. And I'm like, oh my God, this is great. And I think, oh crap, this is terrible because, <laughs> you know, they both tell me the feud's still going on and I'm like, ah, you know, like when the other side finds out I'm talking to the other side, they're not going to talk to me anymore. So I basically was like, I don't know what to do. And Kathy was asking me questions that I knew Stuart knew the answer to because he had told me. So I, I told Kathy, I said, look, you know, Kathy, your family, you know, your father does it still, even though, you know, this is didn't involve any of you. This dispute is still going on, but the truth is, you know, you, you weren't really part of it, neither was Stuart. I mean, how you guys didn't even know your grandparents. They died before you were born. If you want to know things about your family that no one's telling you about, you know, here's his phone number. And and I didn't think, you know, when you're, when you're, we give our children many things in life, and unfortunately, we also give them grudges and hate and, um, and feuds. Mm-hmm. And so those are hard things to overcome. Um, but she actually hung up the phone with me, picked up the phone and called him. And so, um, you know, he told her he had waited his whole lifetime to meet someone from the other side of the family. And uh, they met and they kind of um, buried the hatchet. And the following year, they invited me down for the first Fold family reunion in 96 years. So oh, wow. both sides were there. And uh, and so it was kind of interesting. You know, it's like the Ouija board was what kind of tore the family apart. And then it was the Ouija board that put them back together again. So it was kind of a – it was, you know – just an honor to be part of it, and it's an, they're an amazing family that I'm still very proud to call my friends, and they're just great people. And if, and if it wasn't for them and their openness, much of this history would be gone because they have given me – I'm sitting here in my office, and I'm surrounded by hundreds of um, portraits that they gave me to say thank you, the, the original photographs. And so I have all of them, William Fold, all of his children, and Isaac Fold, and all of their, their photographs are all around here. So if it wasn't for them, it's just really much of the interesting part and in who did what, when, the timeline, we just wouldn't be here. Yeah, yeah, and it's, it, it's interesting, too, that they both separately contacted you. So it's clear that, like, you know, the family's history with the Ouija board is, is still vibrant within them generations after, after William and Isaac Fold. So it's like, you know, they're still talking about what their grandparents or great-grandparents did, you know, exactly. with bringing the Ouija to America. Right, and it was kind of like, how did it, you know, I think they, they just knew that they had a place in history and just, you know, wanted to know more about it. And, you know, they, they joke around. It's, it's really funny. I've become like the, the Fold family historian. And, <laughs> 
they they'll joke around when they're when their grandchildren, when Kathy and and Stuart's grandchildren or great grandchildren now with some of them um, are are doing reports. They tell them they call me up. I'll be like, okay, now when did you know what did my great great grandfather do on this? And so <laughs> it's great to see you know to inspire in their family. This is you know a legacy to their their family. Something certainly to be um, to me very proud of. You know they, they impacted. Uh, pop culture and religion and our ideas of the supernatural and paranormal and games and just it hit everywhere. So it, it is a pretty proud thing. I think it's, it's neat that I've called and contacted so many families that were involved in it and I have never been turned away. Like I, I always, you know, I say I'm interested in this person. I believe they're a descendant of yours. And I know eventually I'm going to have to get to the Ouija board thing and I'm always just like, oh, you know, I'm going to say it and they're just going to be like, Hang up the phone on me. Yeah. No, I don't want to be a crazy person. I don't care about the Ouija board. I've never had that. Um, Elijah Bond's um, uh, great uh, grandnephew, or his great his grandnephew, um, he was actually wonderful. His name was Walter Dent, and um, he he always knew that his that Elijah and his family had something to do with the Ouija board, and his family, his daughter, and everyone told him, "Oh, you know, you're full of crap." Who knows? They don't know anything. So they, it was really funny. His daughter was like, I can't believe he was telling the truth all those years. You know? <laughs> and so it, what was great was he was 99 years old. And, you know, six months after I did the interview with him, and he gave me permission to do that. He passed away. So it, it is – many of the people I interviewed originally, um, up to the grandchildren of a lot of those people, have passed since. And, and those people, sometimes you get, well, my father always said, but – Basically, at this point, all the people who were there or who knew them when they were younger are gone now. So it, it's it it was fascinating, but it was you know it was a huge race against time. And then, of course, I always get the joke that says, "Well, you could always talk to them through the Ouija board," you know, like so. But it, which I guess I could, but it's always kind of nicer to talk to them while they're still alive. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah, absolutely. I do not, for one, think that the problem was that the band was down. I think that the problem may have been that there was a Stonehenge monument on the stage that was in danger of being crushed by a dwarf, all right? That tended to understate the hugeness of the object. You're listening to Banal of America Audio. Look, see? Still got the, uh, the old tagger on it. See, never even played it. See? You just bought it. Don't and... touch it. Oh, don't well, touch I, I it. Wasn't gonna, I wasn't going to no touch one, it. No, don't touch it. I was it. just pointing at it. I... Well, don't point, even. Don't it even point? Be, no, it can't be played. Never. I mean, I, Can I, I look I, at no. it? No. No, you've seen don't enough look of that it. one. You do a remarkable job, as we've sort of gone over here, of tracing sort of the trials and tribulations of the uh, of the industry, I guess you could say, of the talking board and, and the makers and stuff. And you say uh, that the talking board industry saw renewed interest in the 1940s. So I guess talk a little bit about what spawned that and maybe backtrack us a little bit to, you know, we, we've established here that it was booming in around the 1920s or something like that. What, what happened? Did it sort of dip down with the Depression and everything and then come back? You know, after the war, how, how did they, what's the ebb and flow of the popularity here on that? So what happened is we have the, the initial takeoff of like the 1890s, 1900s, mm-hmm. and then 1920s, 1940s, 1960s, um, and, and then today. And what, what, what always happens to the Ouija board is a couple of factors that happen. So wartime always makes the Ouija board do well. Um, and, and early days, it would be because we didn't have, or we can attribute some of it to 
people would use the Ouija board to get answers about their sons that were overseas. And there were no telephones, and you barely got letters, and they took forever. And so getting answers on your loved ones was huge. Mm-hmm. And um, the other thing that happens is economic downturns. So when things people lose their jobs, people start to want answers, and they want to have um, – they turn toward a more spiritual way. Things get simpler because you have less, and um, people start wanting to know what's going to happen. So, you know, you have those times like the 1920s, you get, you know, World War One, World War Two, and 1960s, you know, you've got the, um, the Vietnam War. And, uh, in 1967, the Ouija board did something no other game has ever done before or since, and it sold more copies than Monopoly. Oh, wow. So, it's just, you know, it's huge. It was, and it was, I mean, it was just like, oh my gosh. And, um, that's just kind of, you know, again, an amazing thing. So, again, every generation, discovers the Ouija board and it's kind of theirs and and now you know it's in every B movie in the world and uh, people use it all the time you know for fight whether they're joking or not but you know um, there's uh, Hasbro's actually made a deal with um, Universal and uh, Michael Bay to make the official Ouija movie oh wow so yeah I'll be consulting on that too which is kind of neat nice and um and you will see how that goes. You know, like it's um, it's gonna to me, it's gonna be hard to top the 1980s, you know, Witchboard movie, which is you know, it's horrible and it's campy, but it's so perfect. You know, it's like the first movie where the whole movie was about Ouija board use. Yeah, sometimes those are the best movies, though. So. Oh yeah, well, <laughs> look, the scariest thing about Witchboards is the 80s haircuts. <laughs> but pretty campy. <laughs> now, did did the popularity take a hit from? you know, these outside sources of entertainment like television and movies and stuff like that. Obviously, you know, that, that spawned interest the way you're talking about now. But also it would seem like nowadays, like nowadays no one plays board games anymore, it seems. Uh, obviously, Ouija has, has made the transition to iPhone apps and all kinds of other stuff like that. So, uh, you know, it, it transcends that possibly. But, but I presume also, you know, that the days of people playing board games and stuff are waning and maybe at times it also took a hit on the Ouija board, I presume, but maybe not. Yeah, you know, like it, it, because it, 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 the Ouija board's life um, kind of grows in spurts and usually through fads, it, 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 it did. But strangely, again, board games always do well during times of war. And if you watch television, you will see Hasbro do these family game nights. And they sell a boatload of these games because, again, people don't have a lot of money. And so you start getting kind of get back to basics. And, and that's cyclical, right? You know, like economic downturns happen all the time. At yeah. least once a generation, they, everyone hits, you know, hopefully, thankfully not as bad as, you know, the Great Depression. But, um, but yeah, it does. And, and a big worry for me often spent many times thinking about, God, in this world of like, uh, you know, Nintendo and Wii and Xbox, how is, who's going to play with the Ouija board? You know, how is that really going to work out? And strangely, it found its way into the iPhone apps and iPad apps. And and, and now, for the first time, I will say, and I think this from my research, usually the Ouija board, when as it gets popular, spawns interest in the world of paranormal. But this time, I think it was um, it was different. I think it was all the um, kind of reality or ghost hunting shows, you know, that that people were starting to use Ouija boards and then it caught on and now all of a sudden they're selling like crazy. You know, Hasbro did uh, um, 
uh, what's it called, um, an exclusive with Toys R Us, where they made a pink Ouija board. Oh, wow. And, and they made it kind of like called the Barbie or the My Little Pony one. And it, it came with this carrying case, a little kind of purse for, for girls. And um, it sold like mad. And it took over a year before Fox News it hit the front page of Fox News. Like, you know, the right-wing evangelicals were just horrified. And they're like, oh, my God, Hasbro is entrapping and ensnaring young girls' souls. Play this, and it's like you know, Ouija boards have been sold for a hundred years. They're marketing towards little kids. It's no different than there were. You know, the other edition, it glows in the dark. No, really. So it's <laughs> kind of like it's it's funny to me. It passed, and and the exclusive passed. But um, actually, Ozzy Osbourne um, is offering a Aussie version with Hasbro of the Ouija board for um, if you buy their uh, like exclusive or or like the better tickets. I think they're like $333 and for the tickets and you get one of his Ouija boards. That's a real official Ouija board, but it's all, um, it's all themed for him. So That's cool. if you like the Prince of Darkness, you can pick up his Ouija board. <laughs> <laughs> now, have you worked with Hasbro at all, like with your research and, and, and you know, in, in any, even if it's just like in a consultation role or anything like that? I mean, have they been in touch with you? Yes, absolutely. Um, I, I talk with them um, quite a bit. They're they're great, great, great. You know, they're selling a game and a product, and they were very interested when I first contacted them a few years ago um, about it. When I read, it was I don't know two or three years ago now that they had announced that they were going to do it. I actually saw an interview, um, or was reading an interview online about one o'clock in the morning uh, with the CEO of Hasbro, and he, he was new. And um, Brian Goldner, and he was excited, and he saw potential in Ouija board. He basically was saying, you know, this is an untapped market. It's a brand that everyone recognizes, and I think this is really valuable. We could do a great job, and we're going to do this movie. And I immediately wrote him. It was just like, you know, hey, I'm really impressed that you did this. Um, this is my background on the Ouija board. I'd love to get involved in this project and to kind of talk to you about its history. And it was really funny, you know, he's on the West Coast, and I wrote it at 1 o'clock in the morning. When I got up at 6 o'clock in the morning, he had already written me back and put me in touch with uh, the people who are heading the movie project. So um, they've been fantastic to me. I've been out. Um, so Ouija boards are also still made in the United States, whereas many of their games are uh, made overseas. Uh, it's still made in Longmeadow near Springfield, Massachusetts. Oh, wow. So, though it was made, you know, one time it was made in Baltimore, it was made in Salem, Massachusetts. Since um, the 19, I want to say 1991, 90, 1992, it's been made in Longmeadow, uh, Massachusetts, so it still is. Now, have you, I presume, obviously, that you've used the Ouija board. How often do you use it? I mean, is it sort of like, now is it sort of like you, like with me, it's like I don't listen to much paranormal radio because I work in paranormal radio, so it's like, you know, I need to take a break and watch Sports Center or something. Is it sort of like is it sort of like that with you, where it's like, listen, I don't want to play with a Ouija board. My life is Ouija boards. Or, or do you do you find yeah. yourself using them more often than not? Well, no, I'm definitely completely obsessed with them for sure. Um, <laughs> but um, no, I don't use them very much. I never really have. I have used them. I find it fascinating, but kind of get into it more in investigating its history and doing other people. The one thing I did find real early on that it was kind of like a red flag for me was Ouija boards are so polarizing and people who use them have such strong opinions that I knew if I wanted to stay objective, I kind of needed to not do that mm -hmm. because it was easy to go full into the, well, are they good? Are they bad? Yeah. 
That's kind of crazy. It's like the argument with guns. You know, people have this a problem with guns. And I was born in Maine and have family and um, spent much of my life on a farm or my early life. And you know, I, I am a super liberal Democrat. I will say, and I. I know it upsets my other liberal friends, but like guns don't kill people. People kill people. And, you know, it, it, it's the same thing with the Ouija board. Like Ouija boards are not killing anybody. You know, like, like there are stories early on from the 1920s, 1930s, 1940s. One of the great story was the Ouija board um, told me to kill my daddy. So I did. And this young girl um, took a gun, a shotgun, and she killed her father. And it turns out what comes out in the trial was her mother was having an affair with um, what they were calling a cowboy, and her husband was in the Navy, and she didn't want to get a divorce because she would not have any money. So she played the Ouija board with her daughter, and she decided to use the Ouija board to tell the daughter that she needed to kill her father. So she was pushing it. The mother was pushing it. And, oh, you need to kill him for your mother. You need to do this. And she, the little girl believed she was talking to spirits. Hmm. It turns out it was her mother. So she went and did it. And um, the mother, the daughter ended up in a, an asylum. The the mother ended up going to jail um, as well. But it was overturned later on because he couldn't really prove she did it. So it's kind of, you know, bizarre. there's tons of these bizarre stories throughout time. Yeah, that's weird. Jeez. Yeah, that's, it's really weird. But, I mean, again, it's, it's, it's people. I guess the point of the story is, you know, Ouija boards don't do this, just like guns don't. I mean, okay, granted, I, do, I don't think maybe the average person needs, a, you know, an Uzi or semi-automatic right. weapon. Yeah. So I don't really find much support in that, but I, I, I don't, it's not the actual weapon. It's what people do with those weapons. And so um, it's the same thing with the Ouija board. It's a tool, and I, I do believe that it, if you don't know what you're doing um, and you're just kind of being stupid about it and you're being you know, mean or aggressive, yeah, you're probably not going to have a good experience. And, and the, the neat thing about, again, we, we, we always put Ouija boards separate, but you think about it this way. The Ouija board is people's most, are most people's first experience in the paranormal. And, and, and like many other things that are first, we have first experiences, it's not that great. It's like, you know, the first time you have sex, you don't know what you're doing. It doesn't last very long. It's awkward and you're scared <laughs> and it's not your best performance. And so what happens with the Ouija board is people do it once or twice, have a bad experience, and then they're just like, never do this again. And they get rid of their Ouija board. You know, luckily, insects, we keep trying and practicing until we make it perfect. So um, <laughs> doesn't, unfortunately for Ouija boards, they try them a couple times, they end up in the closet. But um you know, I often say, like, Ouija boards, it's funny because the industry, the, like, kind of um, ghost investigating industry is starting to re-embrace Ouija boards. People who so said they'd never sell them are selling them. The shows are showing Ouija board use. People are not, it's like it's turning. The tide is turning towards them. And, and, and I love to see that. It's, it's fantastic to see people kind of looking at it more objectively than just what someone told them about it. But, um... It's just kind of interesting to me because Ouija boards are much like the gateway drug. It's kind of like marijuana. It's where people who get into drugs start. And for the paranormal, it's where it starts. You know, most of us and all these people who say, who investigate ghosts, their first experiences with the Ouija board, and now they're like, should never use those. That's what invites, you know, evil. And I just think it's funny. You know, it's like, yeah, but, you know, 
having a seance and, and walking around a room telling a ghost, you know, I want you to hit me. I want you to do this. It's like, well, wait a minute. How, how are you putting yourself in danger more over here than you are over here? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Because you hear these stories about people, like you just said, challenging ghosts and stuff like that. That sounds a lot more dangerous or, or you know, malevolent than, than playing with a Ouija board. Right, where you're just like, hey, is anybody there? As opposed to, you know, calling it names and trying to get a rise out of it. It's like, um, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I'm not saying it's wrong. It also makes great television. Don't get me wrong. I, I love all those shows, and I love, um, you know, I've watched the Ghost Hunters forever. I've worked with them. They're fantastic. Um, Paranormal State, uh, you know, the Ghost Adventures, great guys, you know, all have their own thing going on. And it's funny, as I've worked with them over the years, all these different groups, it's changed. You know, um, one time I was doing um, in Cooperstown, I want to say it was Cooperstown in January of 2010, I got uh, Hasbro to give me, a, you know, a, a bunch of Ouija boards. And we went and uh, I did my my um, kind of lecture and then, um, you know, asked the ghost hunters, hey, can I, I want to give away all these Ouija boards. And I want to get to use. I want people to use them during their investigations. And they were just like, "Oh my God, we've never. We're totally against them. We don't ever want them." And I said to them, "You know, I think if you get, you would see if you just let me do this. You know, at first people are like, oh, there's no way we want them.' And then after I do the lecture and I go through the history, like everyone wanted one. Yeah. And then it was the, it was the best. You saw people running around from room to room in this hotel in Cooperstown with their Ouija board under their arm. You know, and like we had like. You know, Jason and Grant were, they were laughing their butts off. It was like, oh, my God. And, you know, I was trying to show them, look, what, really, what's the difference between you've got them using all of these tools. They're all trying to make contact. What What is the difference? And, you know, same thing. You know, the, the um, ghost adventures are great. I mean, you know, they, they've been, you know, kind of using Ouija boards and different things. From the beginning, they were super open to it. You know, it went up um, with them in Mansfield. Fantastic group of people. Yeah, well, I'm sure there's also, uh, uh, you know, a desire, I guess you could say, on the part of some ghost hunting groups and stuff to to be scientific. You know what I mean? And so in turn, then they shun the Ouija board because that's uh, antiquated, if you will. Do you know what I mean? Kind of goes right. back to what you're saying about technology. Yeah, exactly. You know, it's kind of neat. You have a like Bill Chapel who done all these great things like the Ovilus. You know, I mean, they're just, you know, to me, they're like electronic Ouija boards. So it's just funny, you know, to see how everything comes. But, yeah, you know, and then you've got, you know, different people who want to try, you know, to me the, the most fascinating experience experiment would be to really use all of what we consider the latest devices with a Ouija board. Like seeing, okay, if, if you're making contact with a Ouija board, is it showing, are there any electromagnetic fields? Are, are there any EVPs at the same time? You know which thing is working, and is, is is it getting picked up across the board? So yeah, it's kind of this would be neat to see. I'd love to see more of that. All right, now here's this here's a story that someone posted on my forum about uh, the the production of the Ouija boards, and I'll see if you've heard this story or if there's anything to it. Clendenin said uh, he he knew a guy that worked in the toy industry in Cincinnati at Kenner. And he said that he heard a lot of secret stuff from the toy industry, and he sort of laughed at him, saying, you know, what kind of secret stuff could you hear? And he told him this story about the Ouija board, and it said, uh, let me find the right part here. It says, anyway, uh, somewhere in the company's past, they made Ouija boards competing with the likes of Parker Brothers and Milton Bradley and various others. So this might have been like a Ouija knockoff or something like that. Mm -hmm. uh, he says, and I'll send this to you uh, after the interview so you can, you know, 
investigated or put it in your files or whatever. But he says, uh, he told me in the early 1950s there were long-held rumors that if you burned a Ouija board that had made true contact, the thing would sparkle, fizzle, and turn all sorts of colors, etc., like demons were being let out. It was the rumor, and I'm sure it traveled, as most rumors do, of that sort amongst kids and such. Anyway, keep in mind this is before the safety and liability issues of today, back when we coated things in lead paint. They decided to use this rumor to propel their sales, and they started telling people their boards worked better. They actually found an accelerant of the type 4th of July sparklers are coated with, altered with a few chemicals to make it change colors while burning, and put it into the board. The boards were stock. The boards were stock made of compressed fiberboard, so adding an accelerant into the fireboard during manufacture was a simple process. Not enough to explode, mind you, but definitely a fire hazard, and enough to make it appear to be much more than a regular burning board. The next thing they did was to use this board in every fourth game. One in four used this board so that not every time, but sometimes when burned, the thing would be pretty spectacular and appear to, ma- and appear to match the rumor. I doubted him honestly until he produced some of the stock they still had. Use was discontinued in the early 60s. He broke off a piece. We set it on fire. It was actually pretty cool to see, but would definitely appear to make you go, hmm, if you didn't expect it. So uh, what do you think of that? Have you ever heard that story before, or is this something new? No, you know, it's definitely something new to me. Um, and the reason being is Kenner was part, became part of Kenner Parker um, Toys. And so Kenner Parker and Parker Brothers, again, made, made the Ouija board. So I've never heard of Kenner before they merged making it. But it wouldn't surprise me because um, many of the other major manufacturers did have knockoff boards. But... Yeah, I don't, I've never heard of it, but that's you know. I, yeah, I'd love for you to send me that because those are those some of the stories that turn out to be true, or, or sometimes they're just kind of stories that are passed on. But that's pretty neat. Yeah, I thought it was pretty weird. Uh, yeah, he says Kenner started in '47, was bought by General Mills, thanks Wiki, which added Play-Doh to their lineup, which was then bought by Tonka, then Hasbro. So I don't know. I don't know the you know the chrono- yeah, chronology. It's absolutely of it. right because General Mills bought um, bought Parker Brothers. And then they combined. They had Kenner uh, Toys and Parker Toys, so um, and Parker Brothers. So they merged them to become Kenner Parker Toys, and then Parker Brothers again then broke off. Yeah. So um, have you ever heard any stories, not necessarily about them doing, about them, you know, coating the boards with things, but of people who burned their boards and crazy stuff happened that we could actually attribute to this this story? I, you know, I've never. People will say, you know, again that they, they try to burn it, it doesn't burn. You know, they have to keep lighting on fire, it won't burn. And I always kind of, you know, scientifically put that to, yeah, I mean, that those that compressed fiber board or masonite or press board, I mean, back then, like that article said, or that letter said, that they didn't use great things. I mean, yeah. who knows what's in that crap, you know what I mean? Like, they, there was no, like, regulations on what you could, you know, the you know, putting different preservatives in wood. and Yeah, it could be asbestos um, for all we know. Exactly. You know, there are, I have some early boards that glow, that used to glow in the dark from the 20s and 40s. And who knows what the hell they used to make those things glow? I'm, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm sure it definitely would not pass the safety standard test, you know, today as to what they make things glow. So it, it always makes me laugh. It's like, oh, my gosh, you know. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll send you, uh, I'll send you the, the post here and this guy's contact info. Maybe you can get some more info on uh 
on what he's talking about. I thought that was a pretty weird uh, story. Now, what have you, you must have heard of this story of Emily Grant Hutchins and the Mark Twain book. What do you think of that whole thing? Yeah, you know, many things. There's, um, before that, there was, um, you know, Pearl Kern, and um, it, there are many stories which, again, propel Ouija board use, and that's, you know, the belief that, that someone is using a Ouija board to, you know, kind of funnel... Uh, Someone famous or, or another spirit and right. And, you know, again, you've, you, you just touched upon another one, you know, actually getting, you know, Mark Twain to come through and, and write novels. And it, it the, the thing is, is you, there's, there's never any proof anyway. And, and then you'll have literary people go through and say, oh, it is him. No, it's not. It's not his style at all. It's like, you know, I can't imagine writing a book through a Ouija board. Yeah. You know how long that would take? I mean, my God, the patience you would have to have to spell out every word letter by letter. But they did it. And, um, you know, actually, there were quite a few people who, who, who did, you know, quite a few books and, and hundreds of pages of prose and poetry. Oh, really? Wow. You know, so and there's actually uh, there is a great book. I I can't believe I'm not going to remember the the two sisters who wrote this book. Hopefully, it comes to me. But it's called the Book of Inspiration, and um, it's it's actually God. I hope the names of them come to me. They wrote a book, and, and the whole the whole message was um, supposedly given to them through their spirit guide and uh, through a Ouija board. So it, it's still still today the same thing is happening. Now, do you think that the Ouija board's always going to be sort of stuck with this cultural baggage of uh, of it being occult and sinister now that it's it's become, you know, I mean, this has been going on for a couple generations now at least, uh, that, that sort of idea that, that it's dangerous and all this other stuff. you think it'll ever shake that off or it's going to always sort of have oh, that I, on it? I think we'll always have it. You know, we live in a world of, like, instant media, right? So, like, we have cable news, like, telling us every time – someone crosses the street when they're not supposed to. And so you think about what makes like Fox News, right? You know, Fox, the only thing that makes Fox News, it's never anything good. It's always the most outrageous, horrible, horrifying story. Yeah. And, and so with Ouija boards, you know, for every story that someone finds something that was, they'd lost their ring and the Ouija board told them where to go, it's not going to make the news. You know, what makes the news is the Ouija board told someone to kill their family, you know, and they do. And yeah. that's going to make the news. And so what, what, whatever makes the news is what we hear and sticks in our head. So, I, no, no, every time something bad happens that has to do with the Ouija board, it's going to make the news and that's going to reinforce the fact that they're bad. But, you know, like everything else, the minute the church or your parents tell you not to do something, it's the first thing you're going to do. So it, it's never going to hurt Ouija boards because the minute that, you know, like it's like when The Exorcist came out, the movie, I mean, every person who, you know, they were, they were people passing out in the movies here. They were screaming. They were trampling, trying to get out. And you know what they did? They went home because and bought a Ouija board because everyone wanted to see their friend's head spin around and spit up. Uh, you know, split pea soup. So it's it's what sells Ouija boards, or every time one of these movies that really scares the crap out of someone comes out, more Ouija boards get sold because everyone wants to experience it. Yeah, yeah, that definitely seems to be the case. The uh, the sisters are Tina and Tilda Fiore. Yeah. There you go. That way you don't you know you're not gonna have that. <laughs> I, I would think about that all night long, and and they'd kill me. They're bo they're such nice nice women, and um they they worked really hard on that book. It's a great fascinating book too. Um 
you know, and they did a great job. But it was just neat to see, you know, another another book after all this time being, you know, written and, uh, you know, through the Ouija board. Now, what kind of feedback do you generally get? Uh, are most people, you know, positive about what you're doing, or do you get a lot of people warning you, like, that, you know, you're messing with the devil and stuff like that? You know, when I first started doing this, um, Ed and Lorraine Warren were, like, immediately contacted me uh, <laughs> when I was collecting and just told me I was, you know, just crazy and that I was inviting this. And, you know, again, all these years later, uh, nothing bad's ever happened. You know, the doorway to hell has never opened in my house. And, and I, like I told them all those years ago, if and when it does, I promise I will sell you a ticket. <laughs> I, it just, it, it hasn't happened for me. I'm not saying it, it won't and it, it couldn't and it's just, it hasn't. And, um, and the, the, I usually get, I've never gotten anyone being rude or mean. I've gotten people who are genuinely concerned for my soul. And, um, you know, look, hell, if anyone's genuinely concerned about me, I'm all for like them, you know, hey, okay, I might not agree, but, you know, they're actually really trying to warn me about something. That's, that's fine. Um, and most people just tend to be open-minded about it. And, you know, when you, when you research something a lot and you've shown yourself to be, you know, um, valid and, and correct about your research, people tend to treat you differently. I think I, I appreciate the fact that you, trying to get the facts straight has earned me, uh, you know, a, a good reputation. So even though people might disagree, you know, when we, when we talk history and, and, and debate the facts, it just it doesn't always equal where they're going with it. And so I've never really had a problem. You know, I have some, some good friends in the industry who fall clearly on the other side of the fence on this, but, you know, they, they've always been very respectful. Yeah, well, I think a lot of it, too, with the Ouija board, is and and you know I I'm I'm a I guess you could say I'm sort of an agnostic skeptic or something along those lines or I'm an open-minded skeptic so I, personally I've never used a Ouija board so uh, although after this interview you know you're making me want to use a Ouija board and I've had other guests on the show who are like don't go there man don't even go there so it's like now I'm getting a com- conflicting messages here but um I think. If it really is truly, you know, a gateway to the other side, I think a lot has to do with the energy that you bring to it anyway. And, I mean, you're, you you have this, like, love for the Ouija board. So I can't imagine why, you know, I think what you put out comes back to you in a way. You know what I mean? Yeah, totally. I totally agree with you. Especially when you're dealing with something that has to do with, you know, whether it's psychic energy or, you know, your your ability to, to contact the other side. Think what you take with you and what you bring with it. It's it definitely you go into it with a bad attitude or being scared, and I guarantee you, it's not going to be a great experience. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. If you're like, oh, you know, I'm afraid to use this because a demon might come through, then you know, that they know that. I think. I think. I think that yeah. you know, it gets projected out there, and it's like, oh shit, you know, here comes demons, man. Exactly. They're just like, cool. Someone wants to talk to demons. Awesome. You know, like. <laughs> No, and so yeah, I, I do. I totally agree with you. And I also think you know the other problem is when you're when you're dealing with stuff like this, and you know you believe you can talk to demons and they can do really bad stuff to you. You have to be very strong, you know, no doubt. And um, I think unfortunately, people's first experience with the Ouija board, you know, they're giggling and it's funny and it's cool and it's neat. And you know, yeah, if you can get yourself into trouble, I think if you're really looking to and you know, I've had some some really cool discussions with people about you know, some people. They do rituals or 
um, things to kind of cleanse the board or say a prayer or a picture of white light. And I, I, you know, I tell everyone when they ask me, what should they do? You should do whatever you have to do to make yourself feel confident about that you're in charge and you're, you're deciding when you start talking and you decide when it's over. And, yeah. you know, whatever, whatever that takes for some people, it's, you know, it's using salt and saying prayers and other people, it's just saying, you know, hey, I'm large and in charge and you're not going to do anything bad to me. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Now, I'm sure, I'm sure you've probably sort of gotten this question before, but it's like, I guess as I sort of said to you, you know, here I am, I'm, I'm sort of an agnostic skeptic or an open-minded skeptic about, about all this sort of stuff. I think that gives me the best uh, position to look at all these different paranormal subjects so I'm not just like a true believer on stuff. Um, right. But what's what's your take on on the Ouija in general? Do you really think it is sort of uh, you know this communication device with the other side? Well, I think it can be. Uh, you know, I have like I said, I've seen it be a communication to just people subconscious, and then I've seen things I can't explain. And so I, I have to believe that if spirits or the other side can make contact, then of course they can do it through a Ouija board. But you know, that's the whole the whole thing is. We're never really going to know until we're on that other side, I guess. Yeah. And um, that's what makes the whole hunt fascinating. Absolutely, yeah. That's what, you know, that's the journey we're all on. You know, the exactly. guests and me and everybody else, you know, we're all trying to figure out what the hell's going on here with these mysteries. Right, exactly. And the Ouija board plays a, a fun part in our pop culture, for sure. Absolutely, yeah, and it's it's remarkable too because the paranormal seems to ebb and flow and wane, and, and as you've sort of said, you know, the Ouija board is this iconic piece of paranormalia, if you will, for lack of a better term, that that has lasted all those years, you know, over a hundred years. It's it's a remarkable uh, piece of equipment, and it's just it's just such a simple piece of equipment too. It's it's really. It's really quite – I can understand your fascination and obsession with it the more we talk about it and the more, you know, you think about it. It's 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 quite remarkable uh, that this thing has captured the imaginations of people for over 100 years. Yeah, it's crazy. You know, it was um, – yeah, it's just crazy. It was uh, – it, you know, it turned 120 last year, so. Wow. That's pretty cool. Now, is it still really huge in, like, Europe and Canada and stuff? I mean, is this still a worldwide phenomenon, or is it, is it, is it really more of something that's, like, Americana? It always is pretty good. I think it's biggest in in America. You know, Canada probably second, because they're majorly influenced by the same things and see the same TV shows as the United States. But in Europe, it still is. You know, if you, if you go online or go on eBay and you see there's tons of um, – of different kind of knockoff Ouija boards that are still being made and different talking boards. Now, we, we sort of talked about this earlier, and you just mentioned it, and I, I had this question sort of like, a, uh, you know, in the in the back of my mind here. I wanted to make sure uh, that I got to it. What sort of like constitutes a knockoff of the Ouija board? Was it, you know, is it the layout of the letters and everything, or is it just all the different stuff in the corners? You know, like if I wanted to make a fake or a knockoff Ouija board, <laughs> you know, what would you just like slap different symbols in the corners and that counts and you're okay, you're not going to get sued, that kind of thing? Yeah. So basically all that's left um, for the Ouija board is kind of a copyright on how it looks and uh, meaning like not, not necessarily layout of letters, but the symbols that are on it and the trademark itself, the word Ouija. Yeah. So you can use the same layout, um, you know, the same two arcing letters and the numbers kind of in a straight line. And you can use, you know, a sun and a moon, um, but they can't look the same. And if you, I think if you put people playing it in the corners, 
and you use the sun and the moon, you're asking to get in trouble. Um, you know, there was um, a few iPod um, or an iPhone and iPad apps that the design looked strikingly similar, like someone scanned it in, and quickly those ad, those um, apps have been removed from the App Store. So I think you get into trouble as you try to make an exact copy, but it's easy to get around it because, you know, you can use the same symbols, you just use different, you, you do the arcing, but you can kind of, you know, use different symbols, so it gets pretty, I think, easy and quick to get to get around yeah. the not, not calling it a Ouija board. Yeah, just don't call. <laughs> yeah, yeah, just don't say like it's the it's the merch brand Ouija board. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> as as you've established here clearly in this conversation, you're all about the Ouija board. What's next for you? Obviously, you're you're helping out with this movie, and I see on your website that you're working with uh, Eugene Orlando from the Museum of Talking Boards to co-write the ultimate book on the history of the Ouija board. So, you know, what's uh-huh. next for you? What do you have going on? Yeah, you know, it's just the research never ends. There's always something new. Every time I think we're done, something new pops up. So, you know, I do um, kind of a, a lot of conventions. I think my next one is going to be, uh, I just got contacted by um, the folks over in Paranormal State. So I think there's something at Penn State February 26th that I'll be involved in. And then um, I'm going to be doing the uh, uh I always say this wrong, but it's in Gettysburg, and it's phenomenal. It's I can't say it tonight. I'm, I, my mouth is just not going to do it right. But there's <laughs> like March 26th, I think, um, all in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, is another fantastic uh, conference. So um, yeah, I do a lot of conferences and travel around and lecture and talk about it and kind of bring my mini display of Ouija boards out there and show people and so you get to see kind of how the Ouija board has changed and how it often reflects the times that it was made in. So, And how do you mean by that, how it reflects the times it was made in? Well, they change the symbols and, and um, things for these other Ouija boards, including the regular Ouija board, based on when it comes from. So you see things in the 1920s when um, originally the Ouija board was called the Egyptian luck board. Mm-hmm. And you know, it's like, well, why? What the hell did that have to do with it? Well, in 1890, there were a lot of discoveries um, in the Valley of the Kings uh, on Egypt. So to Americans, Egypt was, you know, a completely occult place in, in their minds. So tying it to that. So you, in in the 1920s, they were making other boards, and you would start to see, like, the Sphinx and little pharaohs and different boards. Um, Hasco made a fantastic um mystic board and uh it's all egyptian themed and then you know you get into like the 1940s when things were getting really big swamis were getting really big so you see a lot of that and then you know by the um 60s horoscopes and 70s were really big and so you start to see a lot of horoscopes getting added to the symbols and used on the board so it's, it's kind of neat they often reflect whatever else was really big yeah that's interesting genre. then you see in contemporary times you know they're making the the Barbie ones and <laughs> everything yeah, else. Glow so. in the dark, exactly. And yeah, I put them all over my wall. So I will tell you, they're great conversation pieces, and they make wonderful artwork. Yeah, yeah, they are pretty cool. I think I might have to go out and get a Ouija board uh, after this conversation, so I can, <laughs> if not play with it, have one around. Uh, you know, because they are pretty cool. So I, uh, I, I've enjoyed the conversation quite a bit. We, we've teased here the, the book. What's, do we have any sort of timetable on when people can expect uh, to get their hands on a copy of uh, you know, the definitive history of the Ouija board? 
I wish. Um, <laughs> on it, you know, for a while, and unfortunately, the hit, the research always ends up, you know, we, oh, we need to look at this, and then we do, and that takes us off into a totally another direction, so yeah, it will definitely be done in my lifetime. I will finish this from this side of the uh, the veil, so. Well, there you go, yeah. At least I hope to. Well, if not, then it has the extra added appeal of being, you know, co-written via the Ouija, so. Exactly. Wouldn't that be fantastic? Talk about ghostwriting, right? That would be great. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Well, Merch, i got to say, I've had an amazing time talking to you, and, and, you know, your passion for this subject is really infectious. I mean, you really just it, – it's just great to listen to and, and, you know, great to take part in and, and, and participate in this conversation. So, you know, hopefully folks out there learned about the history of the Ouija here and, and got a different point of view on it. And that, I think, is really important to come out of this conversation, too, that they've heard a lot of horror stories about the Ouija board, especially if they're in the paranormal community. But, you know, it's time to take a step back and, and take a, a rational look at this and, and realize that, you know, what you bring to the table is a large part what you get out of it, too. So. You know, it's not the Ouija board, folks. It's you. It's you that's <laughs> that's, that's yeah. conjuring all this stuff. And, and like I said, uh, you know, your passion for the subject is is really something to behold. And and I wish you the best of luck. It's been great talking to you. We'll definitely talk to you again in the future. You're only uh, you know a stone's throw from where I am. So hopefully, you know, we can get together sometime and grab a beer and talk more about this stuff and the paranormal community. Uh, you know, at length. Oh, I, I would love that. And. Uh... Thank you so much for having me on and the patience on, you know, the many reschedules that it took us to get here. Oh, don't even worry about it. I'm glad we did, and and, uh, it's a pleasure. Anytime, you know, I'm happy to come on, and I'm always good for a beer, that's for sure. Absolutely. Nice. Nice. like to hear that. That does it for this week's edition of BOA Audio Season 6. Big, big thanks to Robert Merch for coming on the show. Be sure to check out his website, www.robertmerch.com. Robert M-U-R-C-H dot com as well as WilliamFold dot com and you spell Fold F-U-L-D Links are all over BOA be sure to check out the websites lots of cool information there on the Ouija board Moving right along now it's time for BOA Audio listener feedback and we got a couple of short ones this week and a long one as well so let's just dive right in first one comes from Kirk no hometown listed. Here's what he has to say. I heard your interview with Dr. Curran. If you want to try your hand at cracking the Voynich manuscript, Wikipedia has got JPEGs of the whole thing. Peace out, Kirk. Well, thank you for the heads up, Kirk. Solving a mystery of sorts that we had on the program last week. So if folks want to check out more about the Voynich manuscript, punch it into Wikipedia and they've got some JPEGs of it. I will definitely be heading over there to take a look. Next email comes from Thomas, no hometown listed. Here's what he has to say. Only two shows in around two months. Are we looking at game over, Tim? I know you've said otherwise. As they say in England, the proof is on the pudding. And that comes from Thomas, no hometown listed. I don't even know what to say there. First of all, I I can't apologize any more than I have in the past few installments of the program for the delays that have been going on here at BOAHQ the last few weeks. We're very close to getting things back up and running, and again, thanks to all the folks who've been sending us very supportive emails. As I said to Thomas, who actually posted this on my Facebook page today, of all days, when I'm putting together the latest edition of BOA Audio, child, please, BOA is not going anywhere. We've got a bunch of great episodes in the pipeline, and 
things seem to be rolling along a lot smoother than they had in the last month or so. I know you may be skeptical hearing that from me right now, but trust me, as Thomas likes to say, the proof is on the pudding. And I will put the proof on the pudding by putting out more BOA audio at a faster rate than we have the last few weeks. Thank you for your amusing post, Thomas. No worries, BOA is not going anywhere. Just a bump in the road. The final email this week comes from Jim in Dearborn, Michigan, and here's what he has to say. Just a quick note of support and thanks for one of the few podcasts that has survived my discerning audio palette. You are consistently interesting and well-researched, with a diverse array of guests and a genuine drive for knowledge that makes your show a pleasure to listen to. For my part, here are a couple things not to sweat. Time between show posts. Your recent longer intervals between posts has given me time to listen more than once. I have listened to Bix Weir three times, Phil and Brogno twice, and I'm starting in on Dr. Bob Curran for the second time. Because you're so well-prepared and so interested in your guests, your shows are very dense with information and bear multiple listens very well. Swearing. You swear, on air at least, for emphasis or as casual interjection. Not at all uncommon among friends and associates at this period in history. Your show is, as often as not, more like a recorded conversation than a formal interview, which is one of the attractive things about it. So the swearing is not at all out of place. People who swear excessively create the impression that they lack the ability to express themselves more precisely or intelligently. You are definitely not in that category, and your sliding age scale of appropriate use of swears was brilliant. Anyway, next time I get to Massachusetts, I'm totally buying you some beers. Keep up the good work. You're awesome, etc. Jim in Dearborn, Michigan. Thank you for writing in, Jim. Much appreciated. Really am speechless about the kind things you've had to say. This sort of email here, like the one from Jim, is an example of the really awesome support we've gotten from the folks out there who are BOA Audio Hardcore listeners who are really seriously supporting the program. I really am just so appreciative of that. I know it's been a very difficult stretch here for the show the last six weeks or so, and I kind of joked about it there with Thomas, but trust me, I am taking this very, very seriously, and we are supremely focused on BOA Audio right now. I know it doesn't look that way when you look at the posting times between episodes, but trust me, we've got a lot going on on the cooker here at the BOA Kitchen, and definitely on the back burner as well. You'll be hearing about some of these killer episodes as we keep going here in Season 6, but we are really trying to find some of the most compelling researchers to feature here on the program week after week. I could bust out the Rolodex and just start going down the list of people who've been on the show before and have them back on the program and pump out show after show after show, but I want to really do something special here, and that is to take the exploration where it leads me, and that's what this season is all about. Thank you also, Jim, for voicing your support on the swearing. A very thoughtful and uh, measured analysis of the swearing on the program. I think he definitely gets it and gets the point I've been trying to make here at the end of the show. BOA Audio is less an interview and definitely more a conversation. And as such, the more the guest and I let our guards down, the more likely it is you're going to hear some inadvertent swearing. And of course, we never aim to upset or offend our listeners. Finally, Jim, let me know next time you're in Massachusetts. I am definitely down for getting some beers. That does it for BOA Audio listener feedback this week. Thanks to Jim for his supportive email. Thanks to Thomas for his hilarious kick in the ass about the delays. 
and thanks to Kirk for the info on the Voynich Manuscript. If you'd like to be a part of BOA Audio listener feedback in the future, here's how you can do it. Just write to boaaudio at hotmail.com or go to banalofamerica.com, B-I-N-N-A-L-L of America.com and click the contact button. And of course, the final method is to join up at the official BOA forum, the US of E.com, T H E U S O F E.com. It is BOA's paranormal playground. We're getting ready to kick off the baseball discussion once again this year, and it is going to be a wild ride, I'm sure. So head on over to the US of E.com for all your paranormal and pop culture discussion needs. And of course, I'm on Facebook and Twitter, so follow me or poke me. It's all good, and I would love to make a connection with you on one of those sites as well. Up next, let's do the thanks portion of the program. Allow me to roll through the list of the esteemed and infamous BOA staff. Leslie, Chiron, Regan Lee, Joe V, Tina Senna, Rochelle Hawks, Richard Thomas, Marla Pena, Bruce Pretty, and our newest columnist, Tony Morrill, who debuted this past week at BOA. I'll talk a little bit more about Tony Morrill in just a moment. Also, of course, big thanks to our contributing cartoonist, Andy Carolin, and our webmaster, Jeremy Boston. Tony just debuted this week with his new column, Fortian Ramblings. This time around, it is his first piece titled Origin Story, or The Answer is 42. And he tells people who he is and how he ended up writing for Banal of America. Welcome to the team, Tony. It's great to have you on the BOA staff. But what about the veterans? What about the hardcore writers for BOA who have contributed since the last edition of BOA Audio? Let me tell you a little bit about their stuff. Leslie talks about her visit to the Las Lunas Inscription Rock in New Mexico. Very fascinating regional esoterica there. Regan Lee looks at the animal die-offs trend and how it ties into the Fortean Conspiracy Matrix. Mind-blowing stuff from Regan Lee. And Marla Pena checks in with Shadow of the Shinigami, looking at some intrigue in the world of Mexican ufology. So, I mean, come on, folks. That's some really interesting and diverse topics covered by the BOA staff. And as we say at the end of the program all the time, if you're only listening to BOA audio and you're not reading the columns at Banal of America, then you're only getting half the story. BOA, make it a part of your everyday search for esoteric news and opinion. Normally, this is the part of the program where I take off my hat and pass it around to the audience and ask you to make a donation to BOA and BOA Audio. But given how lackluster the scheduling has been for BOA Audio Season 6, I don't really feel comfortable going to that well once again here at the end of the program. And in addition to that, this time around, this episode, I think it's important that we stop and think about the people who are really hurting right now. And of course, I'm talking about those folks over in Japan. So if you're thinking about making a BOA donation, don't do it this week. Take your money, send it to the Red Cross or Doctors Without Borders or one of those reputable charitable organizations and help out the folks who need it right now. And that is the people over there in Japan, stricken by earthquake, tsunami, and radioactive meltdown. I mean, you can't even wrap your mind around that. At least I can't. That is just a horrific set of circumstances, and it's frightening for those of us in the world of esoterica who have been hearing about situations like this for years to see it unfold before our very eyes. we got a band together now, folks. Who knows what's coming down the road 
for all of us in the future. That's the perfect segue, though, for the preview for next week's edition of the program. And yes, I said next week's edition of the program. I'm going to work like hell to get this episode out to you guys in one week's time. Let's see how well I hold up on that promise. I'm very happy to report it is another knockout edition of the program. Our guest is Stan Gordon. He's the author of the new book, Silent Invasion, which details the UFO Bigfoot wave of 1973-1974 in Pennsylvania. I had never heard this story before, and it is some mind-blowing stuff. In 1973, and in 1974, there was just an amazing wave of UFO and Bigfoot reports in a very concentrated pocket of Pennsylvania. What makes the story even more interesting, what makes the new book by Stan Gordon even more enlightening, is that he's not just telling you the story of what happened. Stan Gordon was there. He was the biggest paranormal researcher in Pennsylvania at the time. He was working hand-in-hand with state and local officials to investigate these cases. He was talking to the witnesses literally hours, if not minutes, after their sightings of UFOs and Bigfoot. So this is some tremendous on-the-ground perspective from somebody who was there as this seriously insane wave of Fortiana was unfolding in Pennsylvania in 1973-1974. We're going to dig all into that with Stan Gordon next week. Very enjoyable conversation, very thought-provoking stuff. And I say that especially in light of our Gian Kassar interview from earlier this season. I'll probably extrapolate more on this in the intro to next week's program. But when you really think about it, the Gian Kassar interview led us down an amazingly strange and enlightening path with regards to the Bigfoot creature and now enter Stan Gordon's work, which is going to have you looking in a whole nother direction and makes you really wonder what is going on with this enigma. That's next week on the program. Stan Gordon, Silent Invasion, the UFO Bigfoot Wave of 1973-1974 in Pennsylvania. And on that note, we close the book on another edition of BOA Audio Season 6. Thanks once again to Robert Merch for coming on the show. Thanks, of course, to the folks who wrote in for BOA Audio listener feedback. And, obviously, huge, huge thanks to you guys out there, the hardcore BOA Audio listeners, the folks who have stuck with us for so long, week after week, month after month, and year after year. I can't thank you guys enough for your support of this program. It really is what drives the whole operation. Thank you for making BOA Audio a part of your esoteric audio playlist. And on that note, until next time, this is Tim Benall, thanking you for listening and signing off.